We're starting a new section here at the bottom of Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew is following kind of a pattern. He's showing us first what Christ has done for us, and then he follows that up with what we can do for him. And so we've seen what Christ came to do in the last two chapters, 10 miracles back to back, showing us how much God loves us and came to uh, set the captives free, heal our broken hearts, and to save us from our sins. And now we move from what he came to do for us to what God expects of us, the recipients of his grace. And of course, when it comes to salvation, God expects nothing from us who are being saved, right? Drowning people, they don't have anything useful to offer. Their job is to just hold still, trust, and let the lifeguard do his job. And it's the breath of the lifeguard, the one saving us, blown into our fluid-filled lungs to raise us to life. And once we are raised to new life, then, of course, there are expectations and obligations and an indebtedness where God instructs us how to behave. He gives us commandments to keep us to walk on the straight and narrow path that leads to life and blessing so that we can indeed be effective and productive for him. Enjoy his good uh, favor. And so uh, those behaviors, what we do for him is a thank you. It's a response. I mean, we're already saved, right? And so uh, it has nothing to do with um, earning salvation, but it has everything to do with evidencing that we are truly saved indeed. And so here now, as we get underway, the shores of the lake called Galilee, there stands newly saved souls, and they're still wet behind the ears in both senses of that phrase. They've been freshly pulled out of some really deep waters themselves and rescued by the breath of God. They've been raised from death and now to be recruited for life and to work alongside the master. And so time to show some gratitude and join the team with God's only begotten son leading the way with a compassionate heart. He's come to seek and save the lost. And on that same errand, he sends the church. And so we're going to take a look at that. We're going to see the mission and meet some of the men. So let's take a good look at uh, the verses here, starting at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Verse 35 is a summary statement. And then verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now spilling over into chapter 10, the first few verses, we'll meet the uh, official 12. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority 
to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew. We kind of know him as Nathaniel, don't we? I'm going to call him Nathaniel. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, who's actually writing these words. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas, who needs no uh, introduction. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And so... As we get situated here now, you'll recall, and what I like is the previous few verses there, Jesus was unfairly criticized. The Pharisees were kind of backed against the wall, having to explain all these miraculous things. And so they were saying terrible, evil things about the Lord, saying, yeah, he has power, but that power comes from Satan himself. And notice that Jesus doesn't stop and say, oh, they're saying terrible things about me and uh, all this slander. It doesn't derail him. Instead, like Peter writes in chapter 2 of his first epistle, that Jesus uh, entrusted himself to the one who judged justly. He didn't retaliate and get sidetracked by his critics. And so... Onward and upward, he just keeps going and entrusts himself to God. And uh, so the summary verse, starting there at verse 35, uh, just reminds us, yes, indeed, this is what he came to do, preaching, teaching, and healing every, notice that, every disease and sickness. There was nothing too difficult for the Lord, of course. The one who spoke, and as I like to say, the universe came to be, he can handle anything that comes our way. And he, and he wanted to do those things because he made these uh, gigantic claims, didn't he? He said in John 11 and verse 25, if you believe in me, even if you die, you'll still be living. You see, so he verified and validated those claims by doing uh, these kinds of miraculous healings, healing everything that was laid before him so that people would put their faith in him and be saved. And so we're going to take a look now for our talking points. We're going to hear his heart and then meet the Lord's team as it were, there, the first 12. And so as we isolate these verses uh, for you, verses 35 and uh, through 38, we see the Lord's heart. And so something that struck me new this time through was what a privilege and honor it is to have the Lord of glory confide in us. And that's what he's doing here. It's more explicit uh, a little bit later where we hear him say it first person. He says, I feel compassion for these crowds. And the word compassion there, they didn't even have a word to describe it. Uh, The New Testament apostles coined it. The Holy Spirit invented a word for the compassion of Christ. And it means to tear, to rip the gut just to tear him up inside. And it's a word that's really only used uh, for Jesus. And so 
but he confides in us. That's just amazing. One writer put it this way. He wrote, let all creation stand amazed as the author of life, the creator and sustainer of all things, bears his broken heart and confides in the ones he came to save. And so he's pleading with them, his former enemies to help him. He's confiding. I mean, what an affirmation of God's love to you and to me that he, I mean, you don't confide in somebody you don't like, somebody you don't trust. It's just really an an olive branch extended, isn't it? It's just an affirmation of great love and a measure of trust. And he does a lot of that confiding in us. He even said the night he was betrayed at the Last Supper, he said, you know, it's not a master-slave relationship anymore because I've confided in you. I've shared my heart. I've gathered you near. And I said, listen, let me speak into your ears what's on my heart and what the words the Father has given me to say. And so, I mean, look at you. I mean, God Almighty has drawn near to you and confided the very things that are on God's heart. We know how the world is going to end. We know what God is feeling and what he's thinking, the ways to please him because he has drawn near to us and confided. And that's what we see here. So in verse 35, when you see him, and really the the word there is to tour. He's constantly touring. He's going around doing good deeds. He is preaching and teaching and healing wherever he goes. And now we know because he's confided what, what is making him do this, so much so that his family thought he was out of his mind because he didn't even take time to eat and take care of himself. What was driving him this unbelievable compassion for lost souls? And I'm always thinking, is that compassion in his people? That's the point of this passage, is that we share the broken heart of God for those who need him so desperately. And so, yeah, verse 35, preaching. Preaching's that heralding, that uh, announcing that, uh, you know, it's more, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the kind of proclamation that preaching involves. And then he was teaching. That is explaining line by line, precept upon precept, kind of unpacking what he was preaching. And that's called teaching. And he would use parables and he taught what God was like, what the purpose of life was all about, the problem of sin the nature of man, the judgment to come, wisdom to live by, the joys of heaven, the horrors of hell. That's what Jesus was teaching. And then, as we've mentioned, healing every disease, the one who made claims like, I'm the light of the world. If anybody follows me, you'll never walk in darkness, but have the light of life, John 8 and verse 12 So he said, if I'm going to make that claim, I better be able to do what only God can do. And he says, if I can't do what only God can do, John chapter 10, then don't believe me. But if I can do 
what only God can do, then you're going to have to take my words and my claims to heart and know that it's true. You put your trust in me, you'll live forever. Now watch this. And then he raised somebody from the dead and we'd have no reason to doubt. And so yeah, the crowds in verse 36, you're walking through the verses with me. Uh, the crowds are everywhere. It's like a guy standing <clears throat> on the street corner handing out 10,000 bucks to everybody passing by, only so much more. Uh, so much more great than that. I'm raising people from the dead, curing leprosy, healing people born blind. And so, yeah, no wonder there's huge crowds there. And Jesus is now describing those crowds from the eyes of heaven, from how God sees these people before him. And so it may be different from how the crowd would see itself, right? Um, in Revelation, there's a little bit of that addressed to the religious community at Laodicea, right? He says, you guys see yourself one way, but, uh, you know, attractive and healthy and pretty decent people. But God, without God's grace, God sees you a lot different in big need, kind of sickly, wretched, poor, blind, and naked until we come to be clothed with God's grace, right? So I'm wondering if you pulled somebody out of that crowd and interviewed them and asked them, you know, <laughs> about how they saw themselves. Did they see themselves in great need in the way that the great shepherd describes them in this passage? <clears throat> Excuse me, being lost and needy. The two words that are used uh, to describe them by Jesus, uh, they're so rich in Greek, it takes a lot of English words to really understand them. And so harassed and helpless, he looks out and he sees people, he says harassed and helpless in the NIV. Or the Berean Bible has wearied and cast aside. Uh, the New American Standard Bible has distressed and dispirited. Confused and helpless, the New Living Translation. Uh, the New King James has weary and scattered, other adjectives included distressed and dejected, confused, worried, and worn out. That's how God sees people in this world. If they don't know his son, these are the adjectives to describe them. Uh, one commentator said, who I really respect, uh, he narrowed it down to the two words, oppressed and beat down. This really is the Bible's assessment of the human condition, no matter how together we look on the outside. This is how God sees us even today. So to describe the crowd as sheep without a shepherd, he's really saying this. He sees before him anybody who's not connected to the Lord, hurting people in great need without remedy without somebody to help them right leanne morris said when jesus says sheep without a shepherd it points to people in great danger without resources to escape or remedy for their sad plight so i was thinking what if jesus instead of looking at uh, this this ancient crowd in the rural wilderness there 
by the Sea of Galilee. 2,000 years later, how about Times Square in New York or the streets of L.A. or here in Santa Rosa, the stadium at a Niners game? Would his assessment be any different? All of those adjectives still apply when we don't have life when we don't have Christ, when we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Those adjectives really sum it up. Wounded, confused souls following the wrong voices, aimlessly wandering, uh, wounded by predators, torn up by the briars of sin, infected wounds, scattered, lonely, weary. All of this is the way it is without Christ. So he comes onto the scene and he calls out to people in great need, come to me. And that's exclusive. Come to me and me alone. And I will give you rest. I'll lighten your burdens and uh, I'll take care of you as the good shepherd. And once wandering sheep find this good shepherd Uh, They shall lack nothing, Psalm 23, right? Their yoke would be easy, their burden light. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes us do that. That's his heart for us, that we rest in his love. And he restores our souls. And the only one who could restore your soul is the one who created your soul in the first place. And so in this crazy world, he promises us peace that we would be walking uh, by quiet waters, enjoying a peace that passes understanding. And so, yeah, no more wandering into barren and dangerous places. The good shepherd leads down paths of righteousness, right paths that lead to blessing, satisfaction, contentment, and joy. That's the way of the master. That's why he came. He said, I came down from heaven to a lost world to give my life for them so that they would not perish but be reconciled to God and find life in abundance. And as uh, Paul describes it, he says, life that is truly life indeed. And so after describing their deplorable condition as he looks out over the crowd, Uh, Now he describes their state of readiness, their readiness to change using that metaphor. I see a harvest that's overflowing, that's plentiful. So check that verse out there. Verse, I believe it's 37 or so, where he says that. uh, He's saying, using this metaphor, the harvest is ripe, meaning people, needy people, are closer than you think to entering the kingdom of heaven. That they just need to, that that people don't uh, get saved by themselves. That the fruit doesn't pick itself, put itself in the basket, and then take it into the barn. Get themselves into the barn. They need a helping hand. And it's like, here's God saying, and this just blows my mind every time. God Almighty saying, I need your help. Uh, So he pulls us from the raging sea, drowning as we were. And the second we're on the boat, safe and sound, he says, hey, pitch in a hand, lend a hand, help me, help me. 
That's amazing to me. He doesn't ask the angels so much in that regard. He asks us. <laughs> that, that is something else. That alone helps us to live worthy lives, to walk worthy, because God is depending on us to share his burden and to be his hands, to reach out and do the harvesting of men's souls. And so he, he says there's a shortage of farm hands, but there's an abundance of uh, harvest. And so he talks like this in other places. John chapter 4, remember when he was talking to that severely bruised and battered ewe lamb, if we keep the... Uh, sheep analogy the Samaritan woman who was used and abused she had five husbands they kicked her to the curb and the guy she had now she wasn't even married to and Jesus told her all about living water that would change her life and touched her heart and she hurried off to the village singing Jesus praises he told me all about myself could this be the Messiah she says and she was so convincing that half of the town uh, turned up. And as they came up over that grassy knoll, Jesus says in verse 35 of John chapter 4, you know the saying, guys, four months between planting and harvest, but I tell you, wake up now. Look around you, man. The fields are already ripe for harvest. So what is he saying? He's saying, don't have this delay it's not the time to, to even be cautious or hesitate. It's an emergency. You've got fruit hanging low on the trees, ready to be harvested. Work with me. Help me. If we don't help them, the fruit remains unharvested on those branches. And so who would have ever thought that the Samaritan woman was ready to become an evangelist in one day? In one day, she's an evangelist that wins half of Samaria? Who would have ever known that? That's why Jesus says, stop saying, you know, it's four months between the time you plant and you got to do all this stuff. You got to wait. And then, no, he says, come on. Start kind of pull tug. Check it out. Prod a little bit. But have, see, if you don't have that compassion in your heart, or lost souls, you're not, they're not even on your radar. So first we need the burden, and then the prompt to start pulling and tugging and harvesting. Now it's true, some plant, some water, some pick. A lot of people would come up to me at church and say, you know, Pastor Ross, I'm not much of an evangelist, but I can get them to church. And then I know you'll pick the fruit. Right, and so they get the assist, right? Or I get the assist because really Jesus says they've done the hard work. They're spending hours praying and talking and helping and showing them scriptures and all of that. And uh, then I come in and and uh, you know uh, harvest the fruit. I got the easy job, really. And so yeah, one time I was test driving a car in San Jose. Oh, when we first were married, I think it was a Mazda, a Mazda 626 just, just came out. I was all excited. and 
I'm test driving the car. The salesman is right there, and we're talking. We passed the church on Hillsdale. It's still stuck in my head where we were. And I mentioned, that's all I need is to drive by a church, and we'll bring up church, and then the Lord. And, oh, funny, you should bring up the Lord. I was just talking to my mom, and and, uh, we had this conversation about God, and I just feel like, you know, maybe that's something I need in my life right now. Well, you know, it was a few minutes after that, we pulled over, and I led him in prayer. But who would have ever thought getting in that car with a salesman? Come on, this is what Jesus is saying. Get it in your heart. Stop saying, you know, you got to plant a seed and wait four months. That's his point. You got to be in this, this place of readiness, of burden, you know? And especially in these times, wouldn't you say a worldwide crisis, a pandemic has kind of helped the branches hang a little heavy with fruit that needs to be harvested? I think the unseasonably warm weather of a crisis has helped the fruit to ripen a lot faster than usual. So our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, oh, so many people at grocery stores or out on a walk, walking in stride with people. Oh, it's just the subjects right there. They're, they're hanging there. I mean, if you, if you could see what's going across their foreheads, it would say just ready, ripe, ready, pick here, you know, just... This is the point. Have compassion. Have a sense of urgency. Try. If they're not ready, they're not ready. But then at least you know you're doing your part. And so Jesus is asking us to pray to God to raise up and equip more workers. Why? Because... You know, people get pulled out of the raging sea and they get saved and they want to run off and do their own thing. That's human nature. Even saved people, they want to get what they need from God and let God and the pastors and evangelists worry about those who need to be saved. When Jesus says everybody shares a part. And like I said, you can even be an introvert, but you're praying, uh, you, you, you invite somebody to church, Uh, We may not all be the harvesters, but we all have something to do, right? And so this is the point to have the heart, to have the willingness to pray with God, to be co-workers with God. What an honor. What an honor. And so let's finish up with a little quick introduction to meet these co-labors of Christ. There's a lot of cool insights here, starting with chapter 10 and the first few verses. So we'll put that on the screen for you. And so as I paraphrase, he gathers his team of 12, right? And he's going to send them out, not just with the good news, but with power, right? To lay the foundation of the church with miracle signs and wonders, of course, to authenticate the message until the church has a foundation and the New Testament scriptures are complete. And he gave them power over the evil one and power to end people's suffering in a miraculous way. So let's dive in here. God is reasonable without a New Testament, without a church in place, without church history. 
Jesus' claims are very high and lofty, and so he accompanies his claims with power, and he gives that power to his 12 disciples, things that only God could do, like grow new fingers for a leper who's lost them, or uh, open blind eyes. You know the stories. And so after the foundation of the church has been laid, God expects men's faith to rest upon the word of God. And he gives us the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. And now signs and wonders follow as God wills after we preach. And I'll tell you what, the greater miracle of all is not growing a new finger. It's being raised to a life that can never die. And so the greatest sign of all is a changed life. You know, to go from a murderer of Christians to the greatest missionary that ever lived for Christ, from Saul to Paul, that's powerful stuff. And so this list before us of 12 men, we already knew from Matthew that we knew there were five of them. But here's the official list Matthew lets you know here in chapter 10. And most of them we know very little about, probably half of them, and that's on purpose. Here's what Leon Morris has to say about that. He says, evidently, these were not memorable men. This is in keeping with the fact that God has often chosen people the world has regarded as insignificant through whom he would do his wonderful work. So these guys... Not much to write home about, honestly. They're not flashy or winsome or magnetic or uber gifted. They're ordinary men. You remember that paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I have it for you on the screen here. Verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Well, you see, that isn't the most flattering of scriptures, is it? Probably not hanging on your refrigerator. Uh, but that's the way it often goes. And it's not that God has anything against rich and famous people or royalty or the Hollywood types. It's that they have something against him. So it's not that he avoids the beautiful people. The beautiful people avoid the Lord. And why is that? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you think you have everything, you have some measure of success in this life, uh, you don't sense the same need that God sees in your heart and life, right? I mean, they're not thinking of themselves, you know, wandering aimlessly through life and empty and going down the wrong path the way God sees us, no matter uh, 
how many of the world's trappings, we outward trappings we have. And so it reminds me of a guy who was talking, he's planning his, to have a family, right? And he said uh, I, that he was praying that God would just give him ordinary kids with ordinary looks and ordinary uh, intellect and abilities so that they wouldn't be tripped up in life, being super attractive and having everything that the world worships and just making it harder for them to come to know the Lord. He said, I'd rather have just ordinary kids, make it easy for them, easier uh, to find uh, the path that leads to life through the Lord Jesus. And so what do we have here? We have a bunch of burly Fisher dudes. You know, there's a CPA who's corrupt in their text uh, collector. We have a community organizer, uh, which would be Judas. Uh, He was a zealot of sorts, a, a nationalist. And so, yeah, maybe terrible students, just ordinary guys, blue-collar guys, um, maybe a few crooked teeth. Nobody's real flashy or winsome, as I was saying, and just ordinary people. Of course, there were exceptions. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who took the body of the Lord Jesus down and buried him in his own family tomb. And there's Nicodemus, was a mover and shaker, came to know the Lord. Paul the Apostle, a scholar of scholars, a man of means as well. Lydia, uh, the seller of purple cloth in Acts chapter 16, wealthy and a woman of means herself. And so uh, they're just few and far between because as Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through that proverbial eye of the needle, as it were. And so uh, we are taking a look now at the guys. I only have a few minutes uh, to spend here. Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6 for parallel passages of those lists. And so we've got first on the list always, because he was the leader, Peter. And we love him, don't we? Bold, daring, intense, strong-headed, lots of uh, intensity, but lots of flaws too. And maybe that's why we love him so much. Highs to lows, lows to high, foot and mouth all the time, always talking. You know, he's the guy who will walk on water in one hand with a big high. And then, you know, cock-a-doodle-doo. I mean, he's denying the Lord in such a terrible way. And so, yeah, Matthew 16, highs and lows in just one chapter. He says, uh, the Lord says, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And the Lord says, the father has revealed this to you. And then a few verses later, Jesus saying, but Peter, I got to go to the cross and suffer and die. And Peter's like, God forbid, no, this will never happen to you. And, and Jesus looks him square in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from the father revealing truth and a few verses later, the devil's using him. Oh man, what a guy. And so, yeah, he writes two New Testament books. He's always in the lead. He opens, uh, he's the opening speaker on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church that's left to Peter. And so he got his dream. He really wanted to die for the Lord. 
and uh, he was crucified, but upside down. You'll remember church historians say that when they went to crucify him, he objected and said, no way. I'm unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Son of God. Crucify me upside down. And so it'll be a joy to meet this man in heaven. James and John, brothers, last name Zebedee, bold and courageous and ambitious. Uh, You wouldn't think of John as a son of thunder, their nickname. I always think of John as the love guy. You know, every other word in his epistles is love, love, love. Uh, But he was a son of thunder as well. Remember the time there in, they were trying to cut through Samaria. It's a shortcut. The Samaritans are like, you Jews are always giving us a hard time. Go around. And so the apostle of love, John, and his brother James said, Lord, you want us to call down fire and take care of these bozos? And the Lord is, just, the Lord is like, have you been paying attention, guys? Come on. Uh, and so, yeah, a little bit of uh, what we see there. And then uh, the other thing they're famous for was selfish ambition. They're always talking about who's the greatest. And then one day they said, Lord, we have a request. And he says, what do you want? And they say, when, when you come at the second coming, we want to be seated uh, next to you in heaven, one on your right and my brother on your left. You know, I'm surprised they weren't fighting about who gets the right or the left. Uh, but yeah, their mom was kind of pushing as well. But I mean, and this made everybody indignant with them. They, these are the kinds of guys that, that the Lord was dealing with. James, of course, was the first martyr. You remember Acts chapter 12, the hideous Herod had him beheaded. John is the only one of them that we suppose lived out his natural life. They tried to kill him. God's hand was upon him. They even, church historians say, they tried to boil him in oil. But when they lifted him up, he was like, Seriously, guys, what was that all about? They just couldn't kill him. And so he was a great evangelist because when you can't kill a guy and he keeps on preaching, you pay attention, I think. Uh, Philip is next with Bartholomew, uh, who goes by Nathaniel. And so I'm going to call him Nathaniel because I can't pronounce his other name. And so uh, we, that Philip leads Nathaniel. Remember, he says, hey, come and... Meet the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's all, can anything good come out of Podunk, Nazareth? And Philip, greatest answer in the Bible, come and see. Come and see. And so he does come and meet Jesus. And Jesus says, before he opens his mouth, he says, now there's a true blue Jew. He says, no deceit. He's, he's just an honorable man, as men go. And uh, Nathaniel's all, hey, have we met? How do, you, how do you know me? He says, hey, Jesus says, before you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so that touched his heart. He's like, Rabbi, you're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. And Jesus says, oh, man, Nathaniel, come on. You're going to see greater things than that. I'm amazed you believe already. Come on, you're going to see some pretty cool stuff. And so uh, back to Philip there in your list. They're together. Philip's famous for uh, two places. He got involved in the fish and the loaves of bread. 
uh, where he said, uh, Jesus said, you guys feed him. And he says, what? That would take like a year's worth of our wages, you know? And then at the Last Supper, he opens his mouth and he gets entangled in the word of God forever uh, by saying, Lord, show us this father you're talking about. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you still? You don't recognize me, Philip? And then he says, Philip says, uh, Lord, you're saying that we know the way, but we don't know the way. So, uh, you know, we're confused. Then Jesus answers Philip with that beautiful verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Philip, yeah, you know the way to get to heaven. It's me. And we wouldn't have that verse if Philip didn't pipe up and say that. And so that's his claim to fame, as it were. And then we've got Thomas in your list there as you follow along. Uh, Thomas said that, and this is how it goes too. People <laughs> tend to remember the negative and not the positive. So he's known as what? Thomas the doubting, doubting Thomas, right? But they forget that he was daring as well. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, okay, it's time to go uh, wake Lazarus up there near Jerusalem. The disciples say, are you kidding me? They're going to kill you. We can't go there. And Thomas pipes up with, let's go with the Lord and die with the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, no, Nobody remembers that. Nobody calls Thomas, you know, tough Thomas or uh, no, it's doubting Thomas because he said, I'm not believing unless I can touch his wounded hands and see for myself. And so that's what we remember about him. He ends up going uh, to India and does a great work there and he's martyred there. And we were fortunate enough to go and, and, and see those places in India and be at really the shrine that they built where he is supposedly uh, buried. And so Matthew's easy, tax collector at the booth, come follow me, bam, done, leaves it all. And he picks up his cross and a pen and starts writing. And we have Matthew because Matthew is writing there. So uh, James the younger and the other two that follow, James the less or son of Alphaeus in your list, have something in common with the next guy, Thaddeus, and then the next guy, Simon the Zealot, the three of them. They're the quiet guys. We don't know hardly anything about them. There's no cover shot on a magazine. Nothing they said went viral, right? It just really just speaks to this, that ordinary Joes out there, people who just quietly serve, no nonsense, no frills, nothing to write home about necessarily, Nobody sort of remembers them, but God remembers them and you're going to see their names inscribed on the foundations of the celestial city, which we call heaven, because it was through their work, their quiet work. There may be insignificant names now. We don't know anything about them, but when you enter into heaven, the foundation stones will bear these names names that we don't know much about now but for sure we'll know then and there and so yes it's okay to um, 
to be quiet and just quietly serve the Lord. One time I remember uh, somebody asked me about my vision to start the church back 18 years ago. What's your vision? And I could tell he really wanted something, you know, dramatic and fiery. And, and I just said, you know what my vision is? It says there in First Thessalonians chapter 4, make it your ambition to live a peaceful and quiet life as a model citizen and, and making the gospel of God attractive to people. I said, that's what I want to do. And let the Lord do his thing. Just yield to him. You know, he wasn't impressed. <laughs> he wasn't impressed. But you know what? That's the way it goes sometimes. And let's finish up with Judas the faker. And boy, what a mystery, man. How do you live? A few feet from the living God, from God in a body. Colossians 2.9. He's the fullness of deity in bodily form. How do you sleep next to God at the campfire for three and a half years, see, hear his unfiltered voice and see all that he could do and not make it? And you know, yeah, he cried and he, he had regrets. But Jesus said it would have been better had he never been born. So uh, there's no hope there when Jesus says it would have been better that you hadn't been born. And how did that happen? uh, One writer said, Judas teaches us the lethal dangers of hardening our hearts in the face of truth. He kept stealing from the money bag. He wouldn't repent. He didn't soften his heart. And you know what blows my mind? Nobody suspected it. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, hey, heads up, there's a betrayer among us, a traitor. And everybody, I would think all the heads would go, of course it's Judas, nobody knows. Is it I? They're, they're like, ask him, ask him. So John has to ask him because nobody suspects. And that's the way it is. Nobody really knows who Anybody really is until we get to heaven. There are going to be some pro- some surprises, aren't they? Maybe some people will be surprised that you and I are there as well. Uh, but yeah, Judas is a lesson. He's a lesson to keep a soft heart, right? So what do we have here? Well, in closing, we have a world that's in a big Need and a savior with a bigger heart, with compassion. And all he's asking of us is to share that compassion, to care about wounded, hurting souls who need the savior, and to partner with him to seek and save the lost. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you now just to seal the words of these truths in our hearts. Father, we just confess, we just get distracted and caught up in our own lives. We don't really care about the people we meet so much. Or when we see people who are in great need, they seem to be an inconvenience or a big bother. We forget about your heart of compassion and that you want us to join you in helping remedy their suffering and point them to you. So change our hearts, God. Show us, remind us when we see people in need, uh, not to be turned off by it, but to be inspired 
to see if you have something for us to do to harvest uh, their lives for the sake of the gospel. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.